So we're starting as uh, three different churches. Um, we and uh, Salem and Redeemer are all preaching together the prologue to the Gospel of Matthew for Advent. And um, the, the prologue begins with this genealogy that, um, as it was being read, you might have thought of as kind of boring. Um, if not boring, you might have thought it was uh, very hard to understand or repetitive and that it's not likely you got a whole lot out of just hearing um, that read. Uh, if you did, that's great, and um, I'm really impressed by you. But uh, I think that generally people are not very interested in genealogies. But there are people I know, and this happens later in life a lot, where you become very interested in your family genealogy. I don't know if anyone's like that in this room. Um, my aunt is like that, and uh, she has really tracked down a lot of information about our ancestors and told me stories about it. And sometimes when you learn the stories of your ancestors, you, you learn a lot more about yourself because our stories go way back into the past, um, into what our parents were like and our grandparents and then their parents. I found out that um, one of my great-great-grandfathers went to Princeton Seminary, uh, just as I did, and uh, this was over a century ago. And my aunt has his journal. So when I was up there at seminary, it was really illuminating for me to read the experiences he had had at some of the same buildings and places. So that's what I'm talking about. It's very important to know sometimes the, the deep backstory of a person. And I think with the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew is saying, look, you've got these ancient ancestors and I've tracked them down for you. And the Jews were amazing at keeping records of these things. And I've told you these things so that you would know more about who this Jesus is that's, that I'm about to tell you for 28 chapters. And um, two really important things to begin with. He calls him the son of Abraham and the son of David. He begins that way in verse 1. So he just, right off the bat, he tells you this, this guy is the son of these two massive heroes of the Old Testament. On the one hand, Abraham, um, if you know the Old Testament, Abraham is the one that God said, I'm going to bring forth a child from Abraham who's going to bless the whole world. And he's going to be this global savior and he's going to fill it with blessings. I'm not telling you how that's going to happen yet in Genesis 12, but it's going to happen. And then much later on in 2 Samuel 7, he tells David, which is one of the ancestors of Abraham, one of your children is going to reign on a throne eternally. Abraham didn't know that. He didn't know how the blessing would come. But then when it comes to David, now we know the way the worldwide blessing is going to come is through this king. There's going to be a king like David, but better, greater than David, who's going to come. And he's going to usher in such a different kind of age, such a new age, um, that what Matthew calls it is a new Genesis. That's not in the English translation, but in the Greek, it says um, literally the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Genealogy can also be Genesis. So some, some scholars think that what Matthew's really saying is that Jesus is bringing a kind of a new Genesis in the way that God created the whole heavens and earth by saying, let there be light. He creates almost a second time when he says, uh, let there be the word. Uh, let there be the incarnation. Let there be a child in the womb of Mary. And so I want to look at the the new Genesis itself, pretty briefly, and then about twice as long, I want to look at the nature of this new world. Uh, this You call it a new creation that Jesus brought. So first of all, just the fact that it happened. 
Um, Again, verse 1 says literally the biography of the new Genesis affected by Jesus the Messiah. That's a good way to translate that. The biography of the new Genesis affected by Jesus the Messiah. And so what he's saying is that when Jesus came, a, a, a completely new thing began to happen in the world. And John writes this. In the beginning was the Word, in other words, the author of the whole world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Now that tells you a lot about this new Genesis. Imagine you were watching uh, Romeo and Juliet. Maybe you've seen that play, you've seen that movie. And right before Romeo uh, kills himself... um, Spoiler alert. <laughs> if you didn't know, it's already been spoiled. If you didn't know that, uh, that actually does happen in the play. But, but what if right before he kills himself, William Shakespeare walks onto the stage and tells uh, Romeo, don't do it. She's not really dead. Trust me. I wrote this play. Um, that would like be a completely new, from that point on in the play, you have a whole new beginning. Like now you have the playwright that is actually in the play and he's doing things and he's telling people things. And in a lot of ways, the um, Christians believe that in, in, in the, about the year 3 BC, that that very thing happened. That the author of the whole, the whole story, the whole drama, actually came into real history. And it's sometimes hard to remember that just because how far back in the past it is. But the crazy thing about this is imagine like in the 70s with bell bottoms and tie-dye shirts and disco. Imagine if the incarnation happened in the 70s. That's just how weird it is. <clears throat> that God actually became a person in real history. I mean, 3 BC had its own weird styles and stuff like that. But into real history, uh, God came. This, so this is not once upon a time. That's how fairy tales begin. And this is not uh, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's also fictional. This is obviously real history. And Matthew mentions several figures that we know about from non-biblical sources. Uh, for instance, in verse 9, Ahaz, who reigned in 732 B.C., he is mentioned in an Assyrian inscription in the palace of tiglath Pileser III. So that's not something that you have to be a Christian to believe in. That's a secular source. Or verse 10, Hezekiah, 715 B.C., he's, he's mentioned in Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem. I actually saw at the British Museum a... Um, a big, huge wall like this one filled these gigantic inscriptions um, that showed the um, Sennacherib siege of Jerusalem. So you can actually see it. And you realize this is real. This really happened. Uh, verse 10, Manasseh, 687 B.C. He's mentioned in Esarhaddon's list of tribute kings. And then Jeconiah, verse 12, 598 B.C. is mentioned in Nebuchadrezzar's vassal kings. And so... It might not seem that important to you that this really happened. It really matters to me that this really happened. Um, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with my life? That seems very remote. You know, you're talking about uh, thousands of years ago. So why is it important that Matthew 1 is history? And what I would say to you is that it's just as important um, as it was that the, the War of the Worlds was not historical. So if you know the story about the War of the Worlds, you may have heard of this. But on Halloween night, 1938, uh, CBS radio broadcast a dramatization of H.G. Wells' famous novel, The War of the Worlds. But there were a lot of people that tuned in and they did not hear the introduction where they told them this was a dramatization of a book. And so 
the, the thing was so realistic that when they were listening to it, all these people began to panic. And they heard about these reporters uh, describing an unusual object that fell in a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. And they heard about the Martians emerging from this cylindrical object. And then they heard that one of the people who was looking at the cylindrical object, um, a heat ray came out and killed the person. And then they heard about these rapid fire updates in cities all around the world where this same thing was happening. And you can imagine, if you didn't know that that was not history, you would have completely panicked. And so it really doesn't matter whether something is real or not. If, if an invasion is happening... Um, and it's, a, it's like the alien coming in and taking over the planet. It really matters. You're going to be in a panic mode if that happened. Now, if you heard the introduction, then it's casual family entertainment on your sofa on Halloween. So I would say in the same way, if you kind of casually enjoy Christmas and you like the cute manger scenes and the nostalgic carols, I would say you're not really getting it. You're kind of like the person that was on the couch that night, the family that was just kind of casually enjoying the War of the Worlds. If you really understand what's going on here, um, this really happened. And this is bigger than an alien invasion because this is the author of the story coming in and changing the whole plot forever. And, and so um, Matthew is saying something similar to what C.S. Lewis said when he said that Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise into enemy-occupied territory. And now that king is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage, which I've been calling the New Genesis. And so um, maybe you came here, uh, as you come here frequently perhaps, and you, you come here looking for a little bit of inspiration, maybe. Or um, the music is, is beautiful, uplifting, it's inspirational. Uh, stories that are heartwarming or maybe helpful advice or a little bit of tweaking in your life, something like that. Maybe it's the community, which is a great thing. These are all good things to come for. But uh, Lewis would say that when you go to church, you're listening into the secret wireless of the king and his invasion. And so if you're really getting it, you know that um, Christianity is not really mostly good teaching or good advice, but it is simply a declaration of news. Something has happened. So Christianity is really not so much uh, in the philosophy or metaphysics or even religion section of a bookstore or a library. It should be firmly in the history section. This is simply saying something has happened. These events have happened. And we're still, you know, Matthew could have written the genealogy past Jesus till today. And all these events in church history that have happened. And so um, this is about, you know, the king has come. Or if you know the Narnia books, Aslan is on the move. Things are happening in the world. And we come here to kind of join in the king's invasion and his creation of this new world. And the way that he's making all things new. And so when we sing, um, that's part of... Learning a new way to live, a singing way to live. And when we confess our sins, I can tell you that no one is out there doing that other than us. That's a very weird thing to do. And so that itself is taking part in the new Genesis. Or when you pray, um, when we prayed for each other, someone who's not a believer would say that's absolutely um, you know, cute maybe. And maybe there's good energy going back and forth. But uh, as I was talking to a guy this week, he was saying it does, nothing really happens. Clearly nothing happens. And when we're saying no, 
something is definitely happening when we pray. When we give um, money away, that's very odd, very countercultural. That's part of the sabotage. When we, when we memorize the Bible, when we read the Bible. I can't believe how many things y'all were reading. Um, that's very unusual, even for a PCA church. And that's very, very countercultural. That's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. You're forming your mind differently. And so these are the means by which God uh, comes and takes over people's lives. You don't usually feel it happening, but it does happen. It happens every week. And so that leads to the next point, because in saying that, I haven't really told you what exactly the nature of this takeover is. What is the new Genesis? Um, what is God forming you into when he makes you this way, this new way to be, new kind of human? And I think the answer is the, these bizarre numbers that uh, a lot of biblical writers love to talk about these numbers. And uh, I generally don't like those parts of the Bible, but Matthew is clearly very interested in the number of kings and their generation. And so it ends in this very anticlimactic way to me, but to Matthew, a very inspiring way. Verse 17, um, the generations from Abraham to David were 14. Uh, from David to Babylon were 14, and from Babylon to the Messiah, 14. And Matthew's clearly very excited about this. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Why is that a big deal? Well, if you break it down into sevens, it becomes a little bit of a bigger deal. So really what he's saying is that from Abraham to David, there's two generations of seven. Then from David to Babylon, there's two more generations of seven. And then from Babylon to the Messiah, two more generations of seven. The Jews loved the number seven. It was a number of completeness or wholeness. And so with Jesus, what you're doing is you're coming to the seventh generation of seven years. And the Jews actually had a name for that. Um, Every uh, seventh of seven, you're supposed to do this thing called the Jubilee. And I would say that what Matthew is saying is that in in the coming of Christ, a Jubilee has begun um, that is a different kind of Jubilee. And let me just read Leviticus 25 Uh, Just to tell you a little bit of what the Jubilee sounded like. This is just a few verses. Sound the loud trumpet and proclaim liberty through the land. You can return to your old property. You don't need to sow or reap or harvest. I will send such a blessing on you in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. So you've got um, this theme of liberty. Uh, You have restoration. You can return to your old property. You can have your property back. You have deep rest where they don't have to do anything. Um, And then you have this abundant life, crops and all that stuff. And I didn't even read the part about all debts are forgiven. So if I I had this kind of crippling medical debt or something like that, in the year of Jubilee, it's just canceled out. It's gone. And then not only that, but slaves were supposed to be set free in the year of Jubilee. And this was such a glorious and enormous and redemptive event that it never happened. The the Jews never did it. Because it's just like, it's too grand. It's it's too... uh, counter the human heart. And so in coming uh, as a baby, God is essentially enacting the really the real the real jubilee. The real year of redemption is the coming of Christ. And I think two two examples of the kind of thing that this jubilee is, the new Genesis, which I'm calling like a jubilee. Um, I think Rahab and Ruth are great examples of, of kind of the nature of this. And like I said earlier, your ancestors get into you whether you know it or not. Um, I didn't know I had a you know, great-great-grandfather who was a pastor, Presbyterian pastor from Princeton. Uh, Jesus knew that, uh, that these two women, Rahab and Ruth, were his great-great-great-great-great-grandmother and then 
her great-grandmother. And they had a big influence on Jesus, I think. Which is why Matthew included them. It's very strange to include women at all. That, that in itself is part of, I would say, the new Genesis. But, but if you know the story of Rahab, she's right there in verse 5. Uh, she was actually, you know what her profession was? She was the oldest profession in the world. She was a prostitute. She was also a Canaanite. So she was the enemy of the Jews. And she risked her life to save uh, the Jewish spies who came into Jericho. And so not only was she welcomed into Israel, that, that in itself would be enough. That's kind of a jubilee, welcoming in someone who's your enemy. Uh, but she actually then becomes part of the line of the Jewish Messiah. That's incredible. And so in the same way, Jesus may be taking cues from his great-great-great-grandmother Rahab. He welcomes in prostitutes in a way that was very different from the other rabbis around him. And he, he welcomes Mary Magdalene. She's right there with him as he's dying. Clearly, they were very close. That's kind of a sabotage. And then he also protected that woman caught in adultery from stoning and says, you know, he who was without sin cast the first stone. I do not condemn you, he says to the woman. Or think about Ruth. Ruth, in verse 5, is um, Boaz, the father of Ovid, by Ruth. So Ruth is, um, I think, the great-grandmother of David, the great-great-great-grandmother of David. So Ruth was also an outsider. She was from Moab. The Israelites hated the Moabites. The Moabites hated the Israelites. And yet Ruth, because of her steadfast love to her mother-in-law, who was Jewish, Naomi, Ruth is welcomed into Israel. Not only welcomed, but Boaz marries her. And not only that, but then she is part of the line of the Messiah. And again, taking maybe taking cues from Ruth, Jesus, of course, um, welcomes in women uh, that are outsiders, that are despised. The Samaritan woman, no rabbi would have ever gone to talk to her at noonday at this well. They wouldn't have even gone through Samaria. The disciples were not comfortable with him talking to that woman. And then this Canaanite woman that he meets, the disciples say, send her away. She keeps shouting at us. And Jesus says, woman, your faith is great. So again, the way that this is the way that the Jubilee is kind of happening is the way that liberty and redemption is happening. And the, um, the arms of Israel are growing wider and uh, welcoming more people. There are debts being forgiven. There are slaves, people who are enslaved to sin that are set free. Gentiles are being welcomed in. Women are receiving a higher status than they did. And the redemption is so bright that, uh, that everything can come into the light. And um, no sins need to be hidden. And uh, the, the, the honesty of Matthew's genealogy, I think, is a testament to that. I want to spend a little time looking at this uh, because it's so... Um, Astounding that in, in the ancient Near East, genealogies were, were a um, sign of status. So instead of giving your resume to an employer, you would give them your genealogy. And you would say, this is what makes me important. And, and Herod the Great, who was um, the king that was ruling when Jesus was born, he actually edited his genealogy, according to uh, Julius Africanus. And he took out his Edomite grandparents because they made him look bad. You didn't want to have Edomites in your line if you're a Jewish king. So he just conveniently edits them out. But Matthew does exactly the opposite of that. Uh, instead of editing the um, embarrassing members of the family, he actually kind of highlights them. And so in verse 3, he doesn't mean to mention Tamar, but he says, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. He didn't have to mention Tamar. I mean, Tamar is one of those people that in the, uh, you, know, you didn't bring up at the family uh, dinner table. You don't want to talk about what Tamar did. Because if you know the story of Tamar, T- 
Tamar pretended to be a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law because her father-in-law, Judah, would not give her a son to marry. You can go read that story. It's very strange, a little disturbing, but it's in there. You know, and, and so Matthew's like, it's in there. I want you to know that the Messiah came from Tamar. And then even worse than Tamar is the, um, the wife of Uriah. Now, Ma- Matthew won't even mention her name because it's, it's so bad. But uh, if you know the story of the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba was stolen from Uriah, uh, was abused, sexually abused by David, who then killed Uriah, the husband. Now, why would you include that? In the genealogy, if you're trying to make, if the genealogy really matters and it tells you the status of someone, why is Matthew telling us about Tamar and the wife of Uriah? And I think this is one of the most convincing things about the Bible. Um, if you read other texts, other religions, um, other texts about nations and their greatness, they almost always edit out the stuff that's kind of shady and uh, you know whitewashes over things, sweeps some things under the rug. Uh, if you read 50s textbooks about America, you're not going to hear a lot about slavery. You're not going to hear a lot about the Trail of Tears, the Japanese internment camps. Those things are just going to kind of be conveniently forgotten or maybe a little bit <clears throat> tweaked so it doesn't sound so bad. But in, in the church, in the new world of which we are a part, the exact opposite happens. And so we have here the freedom to stop faking it and to stop putting forth a, a false self. There's liberation from that. There's freedom from that, from kind of the Instagram self or the Facebook self or um, whatever it is that you're constantly having to use all this energy to advertise to people and publish to people, like your own you know, PR campaign where you're trying to show yourself in the best light. My wife is actually, um, she is a spiritual genius in the sense of her freedom from um, the slavery of having to fake it and having to put forth a false self. And I don't know exactly how she got this gift, but I think she just believes in grace so deeply that she can do these things. So, for instance, at an adult ed class last week, she didn't need to do this. We were talking about stirring up the Holy Spirit um, and how um, sometimes when we're sinning, we need to stir up the, the Holy Spirit. She was talking about how my daughter stirred up the Holy Spirit in her so she tells this story about how last week she skipped church to go to the Wake Forest soccer game against Akron, which we lost. And um, when she got there, uh, she was a fanatic fan of Wake Forest soccer. Um, she kind of passed me and my fanaticism about Wake Forest basketball. And so there was a friend of here, there was a friend right there on the, the front row, and she she was like to Roosevelt, like, "Don't make eye contact with. Them. I don't want to sit with them. I want to watch the game." And so she um, she moves, you know around and behind this person and Roosevelt, my daughter's like mom we got to talk to them um you know it's, it's it's only right to text them and say we're here and Marty's like no i want to watch the game and um and she tells this story just because she's saying you know that's my heart i'm, I'm skipping church i'm not including someone i know who probably would love to sit with me because that's just who i am and i need the grace of the holy spirit to stir me up like my daughter stirred me up now in the church in this place where the king reigns and there's so much light of redemption, uh, we can talk about that. We can tell stories like that. We don't have to tell stories where we sound good or where our sins are a little bit uh, whitewashed or maybe there's pastel colors around them or some window dressing, uh, something like that. We can just tell it like it is 
not hiding anything. We can be very raw. There's no fear of condemnation in the church because we're absolutely certain that the king is faithful to us uh, even when we're faithless. And even in the moments, maybe especially in the moment we're sinning, uh, when Margie is, is getting angry at her daughter for, for wanting to include these people, at those moments where we're clearly being faithless, uh, that's where God's faithfulness to us shines brighter than any other time. And so, for instance, in this genealogy, he mentions Solomon in verse 7. Uh, Solomon abandoned God and worshipped other deities from his many wives. Ahaz, in verse 9, he took the gold from the temple. He gave it to the king of Assyria to kind of butter him up so that he would like Ahaz. And then Manasseh, verse 10, he was the worst of all. He put a carved idol in the temple. He summoned ghosts, and he sacrificed his son in the flames to Molech. And that's just a few of them. And so what Matthew is saying is, I, I am putting these kings in there. You know, you got to skip them. He skipped other kings. I'm putting these kings in there to say to you that God was with Israel when we were unfaithful. Just like what Joel was saying about Daniel. God was with us in these moments where we were unfaithful. And not only was he with us, he was using this stuff to redeem, to redeem. And even at the very darkest moment, which is in verse 11, again, Matthew didn't have to say this, but the time of the deportation. It would have been like he would have to cringe to write those words. That was the most horrible event in the history of Israel, the deportation. When the temple was annihilated, the, the, the Jews were exiled, they were humiliated. Their king's eyes were torn out and his sons were killed. And the presence of God left the temple. And so it seemed like they were utterly forsaken by God. It seemed that way. But, but what Matthew is saying is even in that moment, God is working powerfully. In the darkest hour, God was with us, is what Matthew is saying. And, and so I think that just in the backstory of the Messiah, there is this moment where the very darkest hour, God is with them in a time which looks like condemnation. And this is, again, what Joel was saying. And just as that is his backstory, the Messiah's destiny is also a time where it seems like there's a deportation happening. There's an exile happening. There's, the presence of God seems to have left. The very incarnate God, the author of the story, he is crucified. When God comes to his people, what do his people do? They, they kill God. They, want him, they try to erase Shakespeare from the story. Where they don't, we don't like this guy being in our world. And so God was never more with us than when he was taken out by the human race. He was never more present than at this moment right here. And so if you think about your own deportation, something that you did this week um, or last week or maybe the week before that, or something in your life that you think about where you were the most uh, utterly faithless to God. Sometimes that's like not being willing to mention God's name. At this moment, you have this perfect opportunity to witness and you don't do it. Or just something that you do um, usually at night. You know, there are usually things that happen. They come to us at night or, or just treachery against a friend. Um, utter prayerlessness. Um, but yeah, betrayal is one of those things. But just think about those moments of exile or deportation. And in the new Genesis, uh, God says, I, I have prepared a table for those moments where I take those into my own life and uh, I am I'm crucified for them. And so in, the, in the, the moment of greatest faithfulness, greatest faithlessness by us, God is most faithful to us. And um, I'm going to pray um, and ask us to know that, even as Joel's coming up to introduce the Lord's Supper. Uh, Father, we pray that... Um...